1: LGBTQ rights advocates protest ultra-conservative Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett. Plus, Pope Francis' vocal support for civil union laws for same-sex couples sparks an international reaction. And the Merriam-Webster Dictionary updates the definition of bisexuality. Those stories and more on our LGBTQ News Roundtable. Later in the show, people are cracking open lighter, more affordable beers during the pandemic. And most of the time, it's the popular Pilsner. How did the Pilsner style come to rule the modern-day alcoholic beverage industry? But first, joining me remotely, Grace Sterling Stowell, Executive Director of the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Youth, or Bagley. Hi, Grace.
3: Hi. Glad to be here today. Thank you.
1: And E.J. Graff, journalist, author, and managing editor of The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post. Welcome, E.J. Hey, Callie. Thank you for having us back. And Jansen Wu, executive director of Boston GLAD, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. Hello, Jansen.
2: It's great to be here. Thank you.
1: I'm glad to have all of you. Early last week, or um, well, actually middle of the last week, Pope Francis made a statement in a documentary that sort of, you know, went around the world, shaking up a lot of conversation and certainly uh, among Catholics and others. But in the new documentary, he called for the creation of civil union laws for same-sex couples. And according to the Catholic News Agency, he says same-sex couples should be, quote-unquote, legally covered. What we have to create, he says, is a civil union law. Now, before you all uh, respond to that, let me say there is a difference between comments that he may make even as pope than um, traditional doctrine, Catholic church doctrine. So just by his uttering the words does not make it doctrine. I just want people to be clear about that. Uh, Let's start with you, E.J. How did you respond to this and what do you think it means? Uh, Well, I I have to give the background that I'm not
0: Catholic, so I don't understand Catholic doctrine in and out. But my understanding is that it's a very nice thing for him to say. It's going to have an effect in various places. It won't have an effect, as you say, in Catholic doctrine. The Vatican is still backing the Italian bishops who are working to prevent adding LGBT people to hate crimes laws in Italy. But there's a little underside to it he wants to forestall marriage rights. So on the one hand, it acknowledges that uh, we are humans, which is always a lovely thing from a religious leader. And on the other hand, he wants to make sure we don't get what the word that he considers
1: sacred. Interesting. All right, Jansen.
2: You know, that's actually a really interesting point, E.J., which I haven't thought about. But, you know, his audience is not just you know, folks in the United States, but it's a global audience, and it's a good reminder that the marriage equality movement is moving forward across the globe and so when he says something like, "You know I support civil unions," what he's also implicitly saying is he's not supporting marriage, and that certainly could have impact and you know other countries that are considering full marriage equality because we know uh, that civil unions is not the same as marriage, uh, but my initial reaction was that you know, good for the pope. Um, He's evolving in the same ways that we have seen so many people evolve in their views on the inherent dignity of same sex couples. And, you know, this is a really interesting moment to kind of reflect back because it's the five year anniversary of the Obergefell decision um, at the U.S. Supreme Court, which granted marriage equality to couples across this nation. And five years out, two out of three Americans support marriage equality. This is simply not a controversial Issue anymore. Um, and it's good to see uh, that the Pope is moving and evolving as well.
1: But, you know, the attention to the internationalness of this issue and particularly around same sex marriage is reminds me that in Ireland, mostly Catholic country, they overwhelmingly passed. Same sex marriage Um, that was supported by the entire country. So, Grace, as we think about this, not just in terms of, you know, other countries, but just even if it's not doctrine, the influence coming from the pope in a very, some would say, hidebound, traditionally doctrinaire religion, some of those religious principles, not necessarily the people who follow it, but certainly the pope has to adhere to that. This seems like a bigger deal than just his vocalizing something kind of casually. Yeah, absolutely.
3: And I think w- whenever somebody who's in a position of influence, and I'm also not Catholic, so uh, but I know that the the Pope represents uh, you know millions of people across the world and uh, and when know uh, uh, somebody who's seen as a world leader uh says something that is positive or makes a statement like this it absolutely is a good thing you know if for me you know my my cynical side is still thinking how much work the catholic church uh, as an institution has to do around so much harm that's been done in so many ways um but but you know but this is a good thing it's a good thing that and it does show some movement or some recognition that there needs to be some shifting, and we know that the Catholic Church does not change rapidly. So,
1: now while the Pope is, by his latest comments in this documentary, uh, expressing some openness, if we go to Texas, we find that uh, Governor Greg Abbott is not open, um, and just uh, required that the state regulatory bo- board there uh, remove. LGBTQ and disabled clients from the ability to get some resources from the Board of Social Work and those those social workers who would, you know, take their cases and work with them. I, I have to say I was a, a bit open mouthed about this, Jansen.
2: I think that what this demonstrates is that even as we celebrate major legal landmarks such as marriage equality or most recently the decision by the supreme court in june to protect lgbtq workers that doesn't make it a norm in our country right it takes much more work it takes you know this you know the lived experience of of lgbtq people coming out you know in their workplaces and the professions whatever else um for it to become an established For the five norm. And what you're seeing is opposition to LGBTQ equality trying, you know, as hard as possible to make sure that it is not seen as a norm. And this is just one piece of that.
1: I thought it was also interesting that it was. LGBTQ clients, as I said, um, that can't now access resources from the social workers of the state, but also people with disabilities. This is actually the 30th anniversary of the Disabilities Act, which broke down a lot of discrimination against uh, people who were physically or mentally challenged. So, Grace, were you open mouthed, or you're just like, "No, this is to be expected"?
3: Well, you know, absolutely. It's just it, it, it's for me, it's unethical. It's just the fact that. There are clear standards in the social work profession and and, and medical profession and and all the helping professions around uh, taking care of clients, addressing the needs of clients, and doing it in a way that first does no harm and and does not discriminate. And for for something like this, it, yes, I'm I'm i I'm, wish I could say I'm shocked in the sense that you know I couldn't imagine something like this happening, but of course it has and it is. But it's more that it it. it you know, on a fundamental level, it's wrong. It just it it harms people, and and I can't imagine why a governor of a state or how a governor of a
1: state could rationalize that. And to add to that, from my perspective, EJ, this is during a pandemic, where if there is ever a need for people to access the services that a social worker might offer, this this is the time.
0: I wish I could say it. It shocked me, but. We forget in Massachusetts how different it is here than in many parts of the country. And I'm sure if he did it, it's because he thinks it will play well to other Republicans in the state. And it certainly signals um, that Texas, um, like some other states in the country, are ready to take advantage of the coming hyper conservative Supreme Court and try and make exceptions to anti-discrimination laws.
1: Yeah, I guess you're right. So speaking of that Supreme Court and the Supreme Court nominee, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who is you know, quite conservative, very, very smart woman, as as people could see during the hearings. This is Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett using the term sexual preference during day two of her confirmation hearing. And uh, Senator Mazie Hirono then uh, condemned Barrett's choice of words, to which Barrett apologized.
3: I have never discriminated on the basis of sexual preference and would not ever discriminate on the basis of sexual preference. You know, like racism, I think discrimination is abhorrent.
0: You use the term sexual preference to describe those in the LGBTQ community. And let me make clear, sexual preference is an
3: offensive and outdated term. I certainly didn't mean and, you know, would never mean to use a term that would cause any offense in the LGBTQ community. So if I did, I greatly apologize for that.
1: You can believe that, you know, she meant no offense. She seemed sincere just to point out that she's on the board of a school that um, says as part of its policy that uh, there will be no LGBTQ students and or teachers, particularly any who are out. So there is that. So, E.J., when you heard Amy Coney Barrett use the term sexual preference, what did you think?
0: I was shocked. I was listening to it. I was shocked by the fact that she said it. And I was shocked by the fact that Senator Feinstein, who was the one asking questions, said nothing. They had to wait until um, the Senator you quoted.
1: Maisie Hirano. yes. Mm -hmm.
0: I guess I'm small-minded about Texas, but expect um, judges to know better. But that is so far in the past, that term. It so clearly reveals that everyone she knows who thinks about gay people thinks about us that way, that that's the social milieu in which she lives. She is not in a world where she actually knows anyone who's LGBTQ and can tell her how offensive it is to suggest that it's a preference. And once again, it, it tells us we're gonna see great big holes being driven in um, Supreme Court doctrine in the years to come about LGBTQ folks.
1: That's E.J. Graff. She's a journalist and author and managing editor of The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post. Um, Jansen respond to Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett using the term sexual preference. So was that a surprise to you as well?
2: It's not a surprise. And I don't think it's innocuous, even though Coney Barrett apologized for that term. You know, I think it reflects what is a widely held belief amongst many religious conservatives, which is that LGBT identities are not real. They're not stable, they're not consistent, that they are lifestyles, that they're preferences, they're a phase. And we've spent a lot of energy and effort to educate Americans that LGBT identities are deeply held. They are part of our identities and who we are. They're not changeable. And for her to use that term sexual preference, I think, does say something. But, you know, at the end of the day, what she says is less important than how she rules. And on that point, we certainly are concerned with any person who would cite Justice Scalia as a legal role model and talk about how the original meanings of the Constitution should guide how the court rules today.
3: Hmm. Grace? Yeah, I agree with Jansen. and. You know if at best it represents her ignorance and, and lack of understanding and familiarity with the LGBT communities, uh, and at worst, it was not innocuous. It reflects a belief that uh, many conservative uh, folks, especially uh, conservative religious folks, believe and and it, it subtly undermines or discredits or puts out there that sense that that this is something we choose.
1: Uh, It was noted that uh, Supreme Court Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, there was a case that came before them, which they declined to hear. People may remember that Kentucky County clerk who refused to issue a marriage license for same-sex couples. She made it a big cause celeb. It was a big deal nationally. So... They agreed with the decision not to hear the case, but they decided to just opine in addition to that and say um, they didn't agree with the Supreme Court decision in 2015 to declare that same-sex couples had a constitutional right to marry. That is a huge statement because there was no requirement for them to comment. <laughs> they could just have said, we're not hearing this case. Let's move on. Jansen, you can respond first.
2: Well, I wasn't surprised um, by Thomas Nalito opining I was relieved to see that no one else joined that statement, and certainly a potential confirmation of Comey Barrett um, will possibly add um, another justice to the court who would like to see Burgerfell overturned. Beyond that, there are greater risks ahead of us when it comes to not just marriage equality, but you know, the legal protections for LGBTQ people generally. That is coming up in front of the courts the day after the election when the court will be hearing arguments in a case called Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, which is a case where the Catholic Social Services has a contract with Philadelphia to provide foster care services and has refused to comply with the city's requirement of LGBTQ non-discrimination and refused to place children with um, same-sex parents. And while this case, um, it provides a you know, real foothold for the argument um, that religious conservatives are trying to push forward, that the constitution protects individuals and organizations' rights to refuse to follow the same laws that everyone else does, including laws related to marriage equality. And that's, I think, where we will see the real backsliding happen um, the death by a thousand cuts through these exemptions um, that just get wider and wider.
1: So, Grace, what we're talking about here is that going beyond just that case, as Jansen said, then the death by a thousand cuts is is sort of the the methodology that's been, you know, applied to Roe versus Wade and to voting rights. Same thing. Just, just undermine in various pieces. Do you see that happening as well or potentially happening?
3: Absolutely. And I think that that's you know in some ways i'd like I'd like to think that the conservative forces as represented by trump and company uh they have to realize that they they might be losing here and so you know the shifting of strategies is simply okay we'll undermine if we can't completely overturn things we'll undermine we'll we'll sabotage we'll i love you yeah, death by a thousand cuts and uh and you know for me, I'm always concerned about. You know how this impacts you know the community, especially young people. You know to see to see things that that we had hoped would be settled law, to see things that would represent progress and equality, uh, you know, be be, be under attack uh, or or to be undermined or or devalued. It just it it creates a chilling effect that that we're all wondering how far this will go.
1: Yeah. Um, did you want to weigh in, EJ? The thing that Thomas said
0: when he was actually writing at the time, he said that Obergefell enables courts and governments to brand religious adherents who believe that marriage is between one man and one woman as bigots, making their religious liberty concerns that much easier to dismiss. That phrase, religious liberty, that's like a huge engraved invitation for all the Christian right organizations that have been training their lawyers to bring religious liberty uh, lawsuits like Hobby Lobby and Little Sisters of the Poor, those sorts of things, saying that we don't have to recognize it because of our religion. And that's a huge tunnel for a truck to go through. Mm
2: -hmm. Sorry, I, I just wanted to add one more thing, which is that we've heard in the confirmation hearings from Comey Barrett that... Um, you know, the question for her really is about who should be the decision maker? Should it be the courts or should it be the legislatures? And she would advocate that the, you know, issues like, you know, marriage equality or, you know, abortion rights or whatever else should be decided by legislatures. we heard that in Robert's dissent in the Bergerthal decision, um, where he said this should not be up to the courts, this should be up to the legislatures. And that sounds neutral on its face, but what they're really saying is that these violations of equal protection don't rise to the level of, you know, constitutional violations. What they're saying is that there's not a constitutional question here when a state government treats one class of people differently from others. Um, and that's essentially excluding LGBTQ people from the full, promises and protections of the Constitution, and that's deeply concerning.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's uh, switch to some potentially good news. Um, looking over in Rhode Island, there is a young woman. She's 26 years old, and um, she beat her primary candidate, and, um, and who was a longtime Democratic seat holder, Harold Metz, and by the way, was known for being vehemently anti-LGBTQ. She beat him by 20%. Um, she's a youth organizer, and she's a Black woman. Her name is Tiara Mack, and she's running against, uh, for the for the final election, there is an independent running against her, but the analysts believe that she pretty much uh, will uh, have that seat. Here's Tiara Mack, who, if elected, would become the first Black LGBTQ state senator in Rhode Island. Growing up,
0: I didn't see many people who looked like me in politics. I didn't know that people with backgrounds like mine who shared the same stories as my family and community could have a seat at a State House table. I am running because I want there to be someone like me in office. I am running because I wanna prove that we can not only have a seat at the table, but we can bring the table back to where it belongs, our house. Vote for me, Tiara Mack, State Senate, District 6.
1: So there's good news. And that coupled with, I did not know this, 500 LGBTQ candidates are on the November ballots all over the country in various contests. So love you all to respond to both of those. Let's start with you, Grace. Well, this is
3: the way of the the future, the, the present and the future, you know, young people have so often led the way in social justice movements and young people are demanding a different world, a different society, a different, uh, different institutions, different structures. And so this is very heartening i didn 't know it was five hundred either i I know it's increasing every year, but what it you know if, if there's any silver lining to you know all of the uh, oppressive bad news for some years now that that young if, if it's pushing young people to get involved and make a difference and run for public office or to get involved in community organizing or to get you know in whatever ways they're involved then that that bodes well because it, it means that uh, more progressive voices uh who are thinking differently about communities and in our country uh, and and equity are, are getting elected and gradually we're we're heading in a direction I hope that that is uh, in, yeah that the, it's the arc of progress so let's let's hope that we're heading in that direction even if we've had some uh particularly the last few years have been uh, a real stumbling block.
1: Here are some possibilities, Jansen. A former U.S. Air Force Captain Gina Ortez Jones, if she won, she'd be the first Filipino American woman to serve in congr- Congress, and she's in Texas. That's kind of amazing. There are two gay black men uh, running in New York, Richie Torres and Mondaire Jones. If they won, they would be the first black gay men elected to Congress, which I had never thought about in this, till I saw this article. Um, and nearly a third of the LGBTQ candidates, in fact, of this group I just mentioned, this five hundred group are people of color. So I'll just get your response to that well
2: no, it's it's absolutely great um, to have the diversity to really show the reality of the LGBTQ community right. And elected officials, along with celebrities, are kind of the most visible faces that most Americans see. And so for them to see lots of different types of People And including, like, not just in terms of, you know, demographics, but also, like, what they do, like, you know, the Air Force captain. I mean, that's not an image that most Americans think of when they think of LGBTQ people. Going back to T.R. Mack, who was the Black lesbian woman running for state Senate in Rhode Island. I actually just moved to Rhode Island in June. Oh. Um, uh, And I'm not in our district, um, but would be very excited to be. And I just think this is just tremendous progress for Rhode Island, particularly because I remember Harold Metz during our ultimately successful push to pass marriage equality in Rhode Island in 2013. And he was the most vocal opponent to marriage equality at that time. And to see him... Defeated by out lesbian and black woman. It really goes to show that even the most hardened opponents of LGBTQ equality can be taken down.
1: Hmm. All right. Um, quick response from you, EJ. What do you think? It's fabulous. I mean, we really
0: are everywhere. That's what we've always said. We're in every zip code and every family, and more and more people are feeling that they just want to live their lives fully. They're out from the get-go, unlike, say, Jim McGreevy, if you remember the New Jersey governor who only oh, right. came, yes. came out in a scandal. And, you know, more people like Tammy Baldwin were like, this is who I am. Now let me talk about what we can do with a better Congress.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to get to a couple things, and uh, one is switching topics, the Merriam-Webster updating the definition of bisexual Um, That happened a little earlier than this, which is Carol Baskin of Tiger King fame coming out as bisexual last week. Let's hear from her first.
0: I have always considered myself to be bisexual, even though I've never had a wife, I could just as easily have a wife as a husband as far as the way I feel about us. I think we are all one and that we are all, I just don't see us as being different genders or different colors or different anything.
1: So I just played that because there's a lot of, um, I don't know, pushback comments about bisexuality in our society. It's it's very interesting. I didn't realize how heated the conversation can often get. So when Merriam-Webster updated the definition, which, by the way, was uh, a bisexual advocate, Robin Oakes reached out to them at the first of last year to try to get this to happen. Um, Robin lives in Cambridge, by the way. She's one of ours. I did not know that. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. We all know her. She's great. Ah. Anyway, all of that to say that uh, you, you know it's to be celebrated. I guess she said, but it's not quite right. But at least it's better than it was. So, have you guys seen the definition, the updated definition, and what do you think? Does it make the point?
0: Oh yeah, Robin's been working on this for a long time. It's um, it's really great that they're filling it out um, because the bisexuals have such a reputation. Uh, not a reputation, but they are so deeply misunderstood. Um, and it's good to see them getting uh, recognized more accurately. Okay.
3: Um, Grace, you are about to say something? Yes. It's also an understanding that, you know, language evolves. And so, uh, and we've seen this with, you know, the term transgender as well, you know, where, where originally when, when the transgender term was first coined, it was, it was actually fairly fluid and, uh, you know, almost meaning what gender non-binary is meaning now. And then it got very binary and, and almost like the old term transsexual. And so, you know, uh, bisexual has gone through that similar, uh, it it was always meant to be more inclusive than simply a, you know, attracted to either or and, uh, and more fluid. But, but again, with the term pansexual and others that younger people are using often, uh, Bisexual has become very binary, and I know Robin and others have been working to expand the definition and make it clear that that bisexual was never never as binary as some people are, are viewing it now. So uh, I, I know it's not quite the definition that she wanted, but it's certainly it's certainly getting there.
1: Okay, I want to end with something totally different. Um, I've I've seen this criticism before in cultural conversations, um, but this is a very interesting piece titled "Why Is Every Lesbian Movie." A period piece. So first, let's hear from a a couple of period pieces, so that we can respond. Here's a clip from the trailer of the upcoming romantic drama *Ammonite*, starring Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan as two women who carry out a romantic relationship in 1840s England. You
0: seem to do everything you could to be distant.
1: She's unlocked
0: something in you.
3: You are the most fascinating person
1: there tonight. And I think the most beautiful. All right, EJ, I have to say I hadn't paid attention to this, but they have a point. This is all over. This kind of stuff is all over the place. What's your comment? I hadn't noticed either, really. I, I think because
0: I've essentially stopped watching movies. I, I don't really know why it's true. I will note that in Hollywood... It, the assumption is that refusing gay people the right to live as we are is now wrong, and there's a lot of tension in a storyline where you get to watch people who are undeservedly repressed, and that that so the historical look—that's what I've thought it was about. The, the mm. look at us in history has been: see you, the viewer, get to feel better than they are, and also nobody really believes that two women can have sex. So it's a lot less scary for people who are not comfortable with our lives to think
1: about two women together than two men. Interesting. Um, I should note that uh, the the new study is out that queer representation is up in studio films. Grace, trans characters are shut out for the third year. And then you have this phenomenon of the lesbian period piece going on. So in that context, what do you think?
3: Well, it just shows that we still have a long way to go and that while we have certainly have had you know more representation than ever before, you know, I think I think the. Film industry and other media representations are still figuring out how to represent our lives, and, and 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 to try to do it in a way that is not exploitive, ideally. And uh, and for some, you know, you know, I think uh, it, it might be what they would imagine as safer imagery, or maybe they feel like the struggle to come out in particularly oppressed times. Maybe to EJ's point that imagining that it's not very hard to come out now, which of course we know isn't true, uh, you know, for all LGBT folks. And certainly trans representation, you know that that especially we still have a very long way to go. There's still so much about trans representation that is still trans people as victims, and so uh, I think to have fully fully fleshed out relationships and and people living in the world and where their identity is certainly part of who they are, but in context of you know the rest of their lives we're we're not there yet.
1: And Jensen I would note as you respond um, that there is a comic horror film out the name of which I'm is escaping me in this moment um and which in the trailer uh, it's it's a comedy and it's a horror film. Um, one character says to the other I'm LGBTQ and the other one says I'm black we're dead anyway just to know that that's this that's the strong bias in in Hollywood that that is actually in the clip <laughs> So I love that so. well it's it's
2: perfect because I was actually just about to plug uh, a recent favorite movie of mine that was released during the pandemic called *Bit*. And *Bit*, the movie, uh, features a lesbian, transgender vampire who is a oh. member of a feminist vampire gang who will only turn women but not men into vampires because men cannot handle the power. <laughs> so <what I> love, <laughs> love it. So what, what I love about the movie is that the main character, the lesbian transgender vampires, is, is played by Nicole Maines, who's a former GLAD plaintiff. We represented mm-hmm. Nicole in a case that we won in 2015 where she was um, prohibited from her middle school from using the girls' restroom uh, because she is transgender. This is the first and still mm-hmm. only state, um, so state Supreme Court opinion um, recognizing transgender youth's, you know, rights to use these restrooms um, that matches their gender identity. So we're so proud of Nicole uh, for all that mm-hmm. she has accomplished and for being part of this amazing movie, which I have seen. I loved. Everybody should see it.
1: All right. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much, because I was, you, were, you all are dragging me down before, I tell you. It's <laughs> really heavy out here. <laughs> so thank you all for joining me today. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Golly. Grace Sterling Stoll is the executive director of the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Youth, or Bagley. E.J. Graff is a journalist, author, and managing editor of The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post. Jansen Wu is the executive director of Boston GLAD, G L B T Q legal advocates and defenders. Coming up, Pilsner is called the beer of kings. It's also the most popular choice of beers worldwide for ordinary beer lovers. But with so much innovation in beer brewing today, will this pale lager remain the best-selling alcoholic beverage of all time? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Over 6 months into the pandemic and the United States is still in a coronavirus induced recession. But one industry, the alcoholic beverage market, has been toasting its recent record-breaking sales. Total alcohol sales have jumped 24 percent during the pandemic, but beer alone has had a 27.5 percent increase of in-store sales over the same period as last year. The numbers show that people are cracking open lighter, more affordable beers during this time, those easily bought in cases. Light beers are brewed in the world's most popular beer style, Pilsner, called the beer of kings. But why is this pale lager the best-selling alcoholic beverage of all time? And is there another beer or alcoholic beverage which can usurp Pilsner's throne? Joining me remotely, Tom Acatelli, author of The Audacity of Hops, American Wine, Whiskey Business, and most recently, Pilsner, How the Beer of Kings Changed the World. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Thank you very much. First, a basic question. I am not a beer drinker, as you know. You and I have talked about wine. That's my thing. So I don't know really what a Pilsner is. So describe for me, what is a Pilsner?
4: A Pilsner is the lightest colored, lightest tasting type of lager. So it's Basically, think of, think of the biggest beer brands out there, the Budweiser's, the Miller Lights, the Heineken's. Those are all Pilsner's, so it's, it's sort of straw or golden colored, and it's crisp, it's effervescent, as opposed to, say, IPAs or, or Porters or Amber Ales or any number of other beers that are you know, darker in color and uh, not as effervescent and not as crisp.
1: All right, so those big companies really tout their pilsner making. Let's take a listen.
2: Yingli Golden Pilsner, a refreshing take on pilsner. For a refreshing take on what's to come, when game day is a go, there's a Bud Light there. Here's to the original light beer. It's Miller time. Carlsberg, probably the best beer in the world. You can't say beer better than
1: Bush. All right, so that underscores your point, Tom Agatelli. But I still am not clear about why it's so popular. Tell me why.
4: Well, it all starts in the 1840s in a part of what was then the Austrian Empire, which is now sort of the western part of the Czech Republic, in a city called Pilsen. And basically, long, fascinating history short, the people there in Pilsen who controlled brewing, who controlled the rights to brew beer and sell it locally, were upset over the competition they were getting from just over the border in Bavaria, where Germans were making these lighter colored lagers. Today, I would, I would compare them maybe to a Sam Adams' Boston Lager, something like that. And in order to fight these imports, the locals in Pilsen developed a beer that was lighter and brighter than anyone in living memory had ever seen. It becomes very popular in the Austrian empire, then in most of Europe, and then a wave of immigration, of German and Czech immigration to the United States, about 10, 15, 20 years later, Takes it to the U.S. German-American brewers in the U.S. basically export Pilsner back to the world. And that's really in a nutshell what happened. And along the way, it's, you know, Pilsner seized on innovations in food and in brewing specifically, such as, you know, uh, mechanical refrigeration, pasteurization, and and use these things to use these innovations to to spread Pilsner even uh, further and farther.
1: Well, let's unpack. You've given us a lot there. Let's unpack uh, some of that. And, again, you really are a, a beer. I consider you a beer expert, certainly about the history of beer. You're the guy who wrote The Audacity of Hops, after all. So um, what made you think that after writing Audacity of Hops that Pilsner needed to be sort of separated out in and of itself and and given another treatment? And I should say that your treatment is about how uh, the beer really fits into pivotal points in history. You always have the great backstory of, of how these things come to be. But having done The Audacity of Hops, you're, you, you've spoken about this book being a kind of prequel. And I guess I'm trying to figure out why was there, uh, why did we need to understand that this is a prequel to the craft beer movement?
4: Well, yes, The Audacity of Hops was about craft beer and um, I, I was looking around for an idea to follow a beer related idea to to use as a follow- up and I thought you know I, I should explain why we got craft beer and what I mean by that is that craft beer which you know the the movement uh, the revolution, whatever you want to call it started in the mid 1960s in the San Francisco Bay area and, and spread now all over the world uh, it, it's essentially a massive counter reaction to the rise of Pilsner Pilsner by 1960s was so popular and so omnipresent. It was just it was beer. It was uh, pilsner and lighter lagers were one were beer. You know they're one and the same. And so craft beer is the, this massive ongoing counter reaction to it because pilsner, you know, it starts out and it's one of many different beer styles in the world, right? And they're all competing for I mean, uh, shelf space and bar space and whatnot. But then you know. Uh, by the 20th century, Pilsner starts sweeping everything before it. It sweeps away IPA. It sweeps away Porter. It sweeps away these really esoteric styles that have only come, only now come back into vogue. And so it becomes so dominant by the 1960s that, you know, there were a lot of people in the U S who were like, this is, you know, we're done with this. We're done with having this one style rammed down our throats. We want variety We want choice. And so what you have is these, you know, home brewers turning pro and, um, you know, spreading information and starting up their own breweries and resurrecting these styles that everybody thought was dead or were dead. And what I should also add is that not only was Pilsner so dominant, but there were only, you know, a handful of brewers and we all know the names making.
1: them. Yeah. The the Bushes, as they say, and and all the rest of them. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about your book, having gone back prequel as it is to go really back to some to some of the origins of this um I'd like the second part of the of the book's title which is the Beer of Kings. Tell us who those kings were and why it was the beer of uh rulers. Well, by uh
4: by the late 19th century, Adolphus Bush was was starting to bottle his beer, his his, you know, uh, Anheuser-Busch beer in large amounts, which itself was a major innovation. It was a and bottling the mass production of glass Bottles and bottling itself was another innovation that Pilsner seized on to become so big. And uh, Adolphus Busch was sort of the lead the lead guy on this and uh, and seizing it to spread his Budweiser in particular uh, further and farther. And so he's he's looking for a slogan basically. It's marketing. So he Uh reaches back to what the Bohemians used to call the original Pilsners and what's now the Czech Republic, and they called it they called this style. The beer of kings, mm. and so he turns around. He, he calls his Budweiser and his Anheuser Busch the king of bottled beers. Now, of course, in the late '60s, his uh, descendants get the trademark for just king of beers, and you see, uh, you know, I think Bud Budweiser still uses that, but that's where that comes from. And it's it's also just an example too of how uh, how big Pilsner got because it's it's not that outlandish to call it you know the king of beers especially budweiser and brands like that
1: you know it's so it's so interesting to both read in your book and to hear you say as a person that does not drink beer, but I am familiar with the brands, you know, you always forget that they came from somewhere, that they <laughs> originate here <laughs> in the United States. I mean, you know, they had a they they had a life somewhere else and, and 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 a real origin story. So I was fascinated by by that. I was also fascinated by a lot of the reviews of your book saying that you really went right at the beloved, most beloved, and misunderstood beer style and that there was a reason uh, for this misunderstanding about Pilsner. So explain what the misunderstanding is that you broke open the story about in this book. <laughs> well, there tends to
4: be in, in uh, craft beer, this idea that um, we're, we're sort of living at the end of history as far as beer goes, and that it all started with with craft beer and that they're, you know, the craft brewers, and I love craft beer. I'm not knocking their, their approaches or anything, but they're the ones who who innovated and they're the ones who, took care with their techniques and their stylizations, but actually the Pilsner producers, especially the German Americans in the, in the late 1800s, um, they innovated as well and, and took, you know, really uh, scrupulous, careful steps to make beer that looks good and tastes good consistently, no matter where it's brewed. So that, That was a major step. And and I mean, the idea is that the mass brewers and the Pilsner producers get blamed for adulterating beer and, and watering it down and sort of dumbing it down for the palate. But in fact, they were responding to what consumers wanted then and what they still want now, because these brands still comprise most of the U.S. and the world beer market. And I would just add, like, the tendency is to, again, see the big guys as... You know, they just ruined everything. But for their time, they were the innovators. They were the guys that said, well, we can make a better, sharper beer. And they did.
1: Well, I have to say, I, I again, I'm expressing my ignorance. I didn't know anything about beer, but I just assumed it was German, period. I didn't know the Czechs had anything to do with it <laughs> because Oktoberfest, come on. Um, <laughs> I mean, normally Oktoberfest would be happening as we speak, you know, into September, middle of October. As it goes, they're all canceled this, this year in Germany and in Massachusetts. But German beer, Oktoberfest, that's... Uh, those of us on the outside would just assume that the Germans were the primary folks in, in creating not just this style, but every style. That's <laughs> why so I thought they did it. <laughs> it certainly seems like it. I mean, it, it was, I would say this, Pilsner was born in what's now the
4: Czech Republic, uh, and it was very much the Czechs behind it. But they they hired Bavarian brewmasters. They they used Bavarian techniques and know-how. So I think, it. you know, one thing I get at is that People think it's a sort of a Czech creation, but, you know, the Germans really ran with it and, and they truly ran with it when they got to the U.S. and, you know, started doing it on a mass scale and started really figuring out how to make it consistently and how to get it consistently out the door to, to you know, to everywhere, basically, Any, anywhere beer is drink.
1: Now, you may not have an answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it. In the book, Heidi, grandfather, would he be, have been drinking... Beer. He was in the Swiss Alps. He was making the toast for Heidi, but <laughs> I'm just, I am I just, it just came to me. I'm thinking he must've been drinking Pilsner. Of course, of course. <laughs> or at least a
4: lighter, a lighter beer, you know, um, the, the heavier ales and the stuff that's kind of uh, really popular with the craft beer set now, uh, by and large are Belgian and English and Scottish creations. They're not uh, the sort of lighter German lagers that are really popular in the U.S.,
1: There you go. That's a literary reference for people. (laughs) I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Tom Acatelli, author of Pilsner, How the Beer of Kings Changed the World. We're discussing how the history of Pilsner has affected the modern-day alcohol industry. Now, the dominance that you uh, talk about with regard to Pilsner because of two big things, immigration and innovation. And the immigration really... uh, a lot of that had to do with, you know, all the people that came to the U.S. with the knowledge of how to do this. And then the innovation came in how they uh, the technology changed so they could create the beer in different ways than had been possible before. Talk a little bit about that.
4: Right. Uh, so Pilsner is born basically in 1842. And in 1848, these revolutions and counter revolutions start to sweep Europe. And a lot of Germans and Czechs were just like, we're, we're out of here. We, we can't take this anymore. So they come to the U.S., they settle mostly in the North, in, the, in the, what we call the Midwest now, in cities like Chicago, St. Louis, um, uh, Milwaukee, and they bring with them not only the knowledge of the beer that they had taken from home uh, to an America that when it came to beer was basically all ale country, although the, the country basically mostly drank uh, whiskey and cider
1: uh, beer was kind of an afterthought, and if it was thought of at all, it was ale. So, when you say ale, you mean dark? Be- what I would consider dark yes, beer. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yes. Okay. Uh, right. You
4: know, pale ale was probably the mo- pale ale and porter were probably the most popular styles in the U.S. And the Germans bring these lighter lagers, pilsner in particular, and the beers that sought to imitate pilsner. And it wasn't just that they they uh, they had the knowledge of it, but they brought a whole different culture of of drinking and alcohol consumption. Um, this is where you get kind of the the beer gardens you know, and the family-friendly beer gardens at that. Um, and this was a new thing in the U.S. where people tended to drink to get hammered. I mean, they they drank for volume. Hmm. And here we <laughs> <Some everybody day. laughs> the, these lighter lagers were, the Germans sipped them and, and they were lower in alcohol and um, they might spend the day with their family while they sipped them and consumed them. And the children might be running around. I mean, it was just, it was that kind of culture that was sort of... Uh, not as common in the United States at the time. And so that too, the change in culture toward alcohol and toward alcohol consumption, that also furthered Pilsner's rise. Um, There's all these accounts at the time, media accounts, uh, uh, diary entries of people noting, you know, German Americans socialized differently. That, that was something that really struck me. And, and I, I had not considered that, that that the culture could play such a role, but that was part of it. And then the innovation, of course, as this culture became more and more dominant, um, there was a rush toward the innovation to sort of imitate the styles in order to produce more of it in order to to get more of this market for this beer.
1: And then what fascinated me uh, where there were some other factors as time marched on. So we get to the seventies and Wine, or actually the interest in wine or the response to wine, um, helped get Pilsner to, or the folks who made Pilsner get very serious about trying to get a foothold uh, into the consumer's uh, forethought, really, because wine was becoming very interesting to consumers and they wanted to make sure that beer didn't go away from their shelves. Talk about that.
4: Well, that's kind of where we get, uh, as far as craft beer people are concerned, sort of the evil empire arises because... (laughs) The, um, there, had, you know, there, there, there was this increasing competition from sort of a resurgent uh, wine industry in the 70s. Um, also, you know, uh, vodka was starting to make a major inroad in, into the U.S. Um, Absolute, the, the brand Absolute would debut in the U.S. in 1979, for instance. So to counter all this, um, and to counter a dip in alcohol consumption, a, a general dip in beer consumption, brewers leaned into light beer mm-hmm. and you know if you light beer it depends who you ask but is one of the few styles invented in the united states along with cream ale and steam beer and a couple others perhaps but you know there there had been attempts at making a low lower calorie beers almost all based on pills but just lower calorie before the 1970s and they all kind of flopped because number one nobody thinks of you know beer and dieting in the same sentence and also they tended to be exceedingly thin and watery and uh, you know, kind of tasteless. Um, and along comes Miller, the Miller Brewing Company, which was the eighth largest brewer in the country in 1970. They come up with a formula. They basically acquire their way to a formula that had been developed at another brewery. And they introduce Miller Light in 1975. And it explodes and it touches off not just the light beer market, but light everything you know, all sorts of light food stuffs, and helps, uh, you know, the, the modern exercise boom and exercise equipment boom and gym, gym chain boom in the 1980s and, and just has a life of its own. And by the end of the decade, Miller is the second largest brewer in the, in the world and the country and Anheuser-Busch is the first. And basically the two of them spend the rest of the 20th century dividing up the world between them when it comes to beer.
1: Well, that was a big cultural change, much like the other one that you mentioned in which um Americans started to see, wow, you could drink beer and not just to get hammered, but as a part of one's you know just enjoyment of of life and uh, family and and uh, dinner, let's say. So let's talk about this move now. Now we've got a it seems to me a a dual move, non-alcoholic beers and other formerly alcoholic beverages and these other light beverages like the white claw seltzers, all of these alcoholic seltzers are off the charts with people being excited. These aperitifs are back and popular. Where are Pilsner's going to be in this, in this whole spectrum of, of where consumers are looking now and who are these consumers? Have they changed from the folks who have made Pilsner so popular for so long?
4: That's a great question. I I think with Seltzer and the, the rise of non-alcoholic beers now. Um, more, more, you know, craft brewers are getting into that and getting into hard seltzer and hard seltzer is uh, growing. I think that's a reaction to the fact that the research shows that millennials and Generation Z, that they're going, that they're drinking less and going to be drinking less than previous generations. So I, I think it's kind of a, uh, they're, they're kind of a ploy, for lack of a better word, to try to capture whatever market share uh, the the producers can, in a climate where people don't necessarily want to taste the alcohol and they don't want to necessarily drink for any sort of taste. Now, as far as Pilsner fits in, um, that's a great question. I, I think, uh, you know, that the it will continue to be the dominant beer style in the world for at least the next couple of decades, but I could see it being edged out. Uh, by mid-century by ipa and what i mean by that is just i think there's going to become a you know ipa keeps growing as a segment of the craft beer market and is increasingly breaking through as uh, on the macro level as bigger producers like anheuser-busch imbev uh, acquire smaller producers so i think you could see you know by 2050 2060 you could see ipa As the dominant beer style, and and, you know some some brands might not call themselves IPA, but they'll be bitter ales, uh, and the sort of uh, crisper pilsners will will gradually you know fall out of favor. Now, last thing at the same time, pilsner is enjoying a renaissance in the craft beer world. You're seeing more craft craft producers producing. Pilsners, whereas they used to shy away and they used to go for hoppier and bitterer and, and more powerful and stronger ales. And now they're like, no, let's 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 play with the nuance that we can find in these lighter lagers.
1: Hmm. What do you think the, the uh coronavirus pandemic has done to it's focused the attention of consumers on a number of things. So going back to basics like baking bread. I'm wondering if maybe the, the craft beer gets a little a boost because of that because people are like oh i want i want it homemade i want it close to homemade um even if i'm not drinking as much what i choose to drink i I want to have it specially crafted do you are you seeing that yes
4: i think anecdotally you're seeing it and there's there are some statistics that show that uh you know especially the larger legacy craft brands are seeing a boost in sales i don't think it's i don't think it's um trickling down sort of to the smaller producers and many of those are in danger of of going out of business because they've they've lost their regular the regular use of their tap rooms for instance where they do a lot of their sales and distribution Mm -hmm. has Mm -hmm. always been a challenge for the smaller players but i think the larger craft producers yeah they're definitely getting a boost from this and i think in general you know yeah people if, if they're gonna it's it times are tough it's not if they yeah. are going to reward themselves, they're going to reward themselves and they're going to choose this sort of uh, better crafted uh, food stuff in general. So,
1: Final question. What are you drinking beer wise? Oh,
4: um, I, I have sort of shied away from Pilsner. I spent so much time with it writing this book. I was able to taste so many, so many great Pilsners, but I'm just sort of done with them for right now. And I've, I'm sort of pivoting toward the stronger, more bitter double IPAs, New England IPAs, that, those
1: types of beers.
4: I don't know why. I guess guess it's my own counter reaction.
1: Any non-alcoholic beers in your fridge?
4: Uh, Not at the moment, and I can't recall the last time there might have been. Okay. Just checking. I'm I'm curious (laughs) now. Some of them are supposedly quite good.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. They they may be the second beer of King's (laughs) in your next book. Um, Thank you so much for joining me, Tom. Thank you. Tom Accatelli is the author of The Audacity of Hops, American Wine, Whiskey Business, and most recently, Pilsner, How the Beer of Kings Changed the World. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at GBH.org News, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Jubilee and engineered by Dave Goodman. Kate Dario is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxys, Grace Kelly, and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.